after today we have only five more lessons. So we're on the home stretch. <laughs> um, so um, I thought that it might be a good day to kind of do, as I talk through the disciplines, to kind of do an overview, like a kind of from a bird's eye view of all that we've covered. Because I was looking at our schedule and I thought, man, we have learned a lot. <laughs> you guys have a lot in your heads. <laughs> so I thought it might be beneficial just to kind of, as we talk through them, review what we've covered. I'm sure I won't hit everything because there's a lot, but. It, it helped me to just look at it and think about it that way. So, um, when we began, we began with a big picture of like what, how God is pleased to transform and set apart individual lives in order to bring them together as a united body to accomplish His purposes. So, it was kind of that lesson where we learned why we're doing this and why um, God, God's heart behind it all, that it's not only our individual hearts, but it's for the whole church and for, for a bigger plan for God's purposes. So that was encouraging. Um, and then um, at the end, we have explored and expanded on three areas, not at the end, but during this whole thing. We've explored and expanded on three areas of our lives. The one is discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Um, we've seen how the cross work of Christ saves us from our slavery to sin and it brings us to the slavery to righteousness. We now have a soft heart that is moldable and able to not sin and yet our transformation is still incomplete by God's design. He left us there, and it's in that mixed condition. In his wisdom, we are left there with a new heart that is exposed daily to our sinful fleshly desires, and this sinful worldly environment we live in is where God is transforming us continually. So. These hearts are fickle, and they're easily deceived and carried away. So we saw how it was important to guard them and to shepherd them towards God and his word to get to know the God of himself. We go to God's word to learn about and remember who he is, how he saved us, what he saved us from, what he's saving us to, our hope in heaven. That gives us great hope to persevere in that walk of transformation. Um, we saw how this shepherding care of our own hearts needs to happen with our Bibles open daily and also that it needs to happen throughout our days as we step into every part of our lives using scripture and song lyrics, sermons, wise authors, etc. to remind us of these gospel truths and to help us root out where we're missing the mark and where we're um, rooting out our sinful thoughts, you know, with that little chart, the spiral thing that we got, <laughs> um, and how um, working on our responses. So minute by minute, that's happening. Um, and then it, that leads to discipline two, the home. 
The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home, and she ministers to them with her heart fixed on God in his word. Can you guys hear me okay? I'm kind of self-conscious about that. Um, so, we saw the inseparable connection between, that God puts between our hearts and our homes. Um, we saw the influence that we have as women in our homes for God's glory or for evil. Um, we have, uh, we are the center of that home and so we make a big impact on what happens there and also how what happens there impacts our hearts and the hearts of those around us. So it works both ways. The fruit of the shepherding care for our hearts is put on display in our homes and we are a work in process. God is gracious to give us examples of success in these areas in his word and also examples of failure. Um, he knows that we can experience failure in our homes, but he has mercy and he has grace to give us as we seek forgiveness when we fail and as we give forgiveness to those in our homes. So God doesn't expect us to be perfect. You know, he gives us grace and mercy. I'm so thankful for that because that's how we grow and that's how he knows that's how we can become more like Christ. Um, so then that kind of leads us to discipline three, which is what we're focusing on today. So I'm excited about that. With a heart fixed on God and keeping a God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We've seen how all of this transforming work is preparing us to continue or, and continues to happen as we humbly step into the lives of others in our church body and our neighborhoods. God is gracious to put us together to rub up against each other and to sharpen each other by experiencing trials together. And as we serve alongside each other, we bear each other's burdens and we sit under the same teaching together. So all of these things um, are by God's design. You know, he put us in these situations together so that we can humbly walk with each other. Um, and that is how God's purposes are fulfilled. So it was just exciting for me to think about how just us sitting with our Bible open is accomplishing God's bigger purpose. So I think that gives me motivation to continue on that and persevere hard in that area. Um, hopefully that when you read this verse, Proverbs 4.23 from now on, you'll think of all of those things. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Um, that there's just a lot of equipping and encouraging that's gone on. So I'll, I wanted to already start encouraging you guys as you finish the last few lessons to um, have a plan to take these with you, like during the summer when we're not meeting regularly and um, be able to review them once in a while as you sit with your Bible and without your Bible <laughs> during the day. So now Janet is gonna come and teach us about how we can think rightly as we are stepping into ministry. Um, so thank you, Janet. 
Well, as I was driving here this morning and just enjoying the rain, I was thinking about how God is just in control of all the details in our lives because I would normally, I would rather just be at home sleeping when it's dark and raining, but I really didn't have that desire today. I was just excited to come and, and teach what I've been able to study. But then I was thinking about you guys and how you aren't coming to teach and share something that you've been studying. You're just coming. So it'd be easier probably to want to just stay in bed. But then I was thinking, God knows. God knows all the details of when lessons, you know, at the beginning of the summer, we plan when lessons will be. And God is sovereign over those details. And I just was thinking about how awesome that he knows all, like all of you, like all the things that you guys are thinking and your days and what's going on and he knows what's best for us and all fits together. I think about trying to like keep up with the details in my own little family and I get excited when things fall into place and I'm thinking he knows the entire world, not just our church, not just this little room of women, but it's just his knowledge is encouraging. It's wonderful. So um, let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you bringing us all together. Um, God, I just ask that you would do your work that only you can do through your word. Um, God, we we really do want to know you. We want to live for you, and we want to um, care well for each other, as well as caring for our hearts, caring for our homes. Um, God, I just ask that this would be helpful for all of us as we think about how to interact with one another um, in different situations that we all can find ourselves in at one time or another in our lives. Um, God, we ask that you would be honored and that you would enable us. Thank you for your word. Amen. Okay, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians. You can just stay on chapter 1 if you want. So this morning, we're going to spend time in just one verse that's going to give us some practical instruction for how to practice Discipline 3. So as Discipline 3 states, and Dina just read it, We desire to step into the lives of each other in the church and outside the church in order to point others to God and to the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 provides us with not just techniques, but as David Pallison says, it provides us with different ways of loving appropriately. David Pallison is a biblical counselor, and he wrote an article it's all about 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and it's a very long article. You would, might be surprised at how much you can write about this one verse, but he wrote about how to use it in counseling situations, and I'm going to quote from him a lot, but his article is in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Um, nobody wants a misdiagnosis when it comes to physical health. So if you're experiencing some weird or strange symptoms on your own at home, you might think, I need to go to the doctor and see what's going on. So when you go, you're hoping that your doctor is going to listen to you well and be accurate in their diagnosis. So it would be discouraging if you went and the doctor saw that you had a high fever, you had respiratory congestion, and you're coughing and you're tired, and he said, pretty sure I know what this is, and you're thinking he's going to swab you for the flu or something, and he says, I'm pretty sure we need to work on your insulin, I think you have diabetes, and we're going to start testing your blood, you know, that would be weird and discouraging. Um, You wouldn't be getting the right diagnosis, and then you're not going to get the right treatment if you don't get the right diagnosis. So last year, when I was preparing for this lesson, I found this website um, that had doctors and nurses and medical techs write in anonymously, which I guess is good because I think they could have been sued for all the things that were on here, Um, right about times that they themselves 
mis, either misdiagnosed or mistreated a patient, patient or maybe someone they were working with did something wrong and it was really scary to read, but one of them fit for an illustration for this lesson. Um, so there was a young doctor, well it was a, a man, or I think it was a man, he wrote in and he was talking about when he was a young doctor and this happened. He said he had a patient come to him with these symptoms. She said she had spells of bizarre sensations, altered awareness, a pounding in her chest that was so hard she'd have to sit down, stop what she was doing, and she couldn't speak. So that's all that's listed. She probably had some other symptoms. That's, those might be a little bit too vague. But anyway, he did know that before she came to him, years before, she had a gunshot wound to her head. So her front, one of the frontal lobes of her brain had been scarred and an optic nerve to her eye had been severed. So he assumed that she had developed frontal lobe epilepsy. And so he gave her anti-seizure drugs. Um, and he kept increasing the doses until those symptoms went away. And so they, he thought, oh good, we figured it out, this is it. Well then the symptoms came back and she went to an endocrinologist. And it was two years after he'd been trying to work with her, she went to an endocrinologist and they discovered that she had hyperthyroidism. So that doctor took care of her thyroid issue, radiated it, gave her the right meds, and she was able to stop taking the anti-seizure medicine because she'd never had epilepsy in the first place. So she could have been helped two years before if she'd gone to a doctor, or if he had just taken the time to maybe listen better, to think outside the box, maybe he just, you know, the thought of checking her thyroid just didn't cross his mind. He might, maybe should have asked a doctor who was a little bit more experienced further along in his career, um, but in, eventually she was helped and she was able to get the appropriate medicine that she actually needed. And that was one of the best stories on this website <laughs> that I found. So the verse that we're looking at today instructs us to check spiritual symptoms in one another so that we're able to give the appropriate kind of care to each other. God's wisdom provides us with real symptoms, real conditions, and the correct medicine, or the correct spiritual solution. So before we jump in just to this one verse, we're going to get established a little bit in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Anytime we want to understand one specific verse in scripture, it's helpful, if not necessary, to kind of zoom out a bit and make sure we understand the context in which the verse fits. So it's good to remember that this book, 1 Thessalonians, is an actual letter. It's a real letter. It was written almost 1900 years ago, and it was written to real people. All of these words are inspired by God. It says that it came from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Paul is the main author in this. He's the one that's actually doing the writing, but Silas and Timothy were with him, and obviously God is the author as well. Um, they sent this letter to the church that was in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city in an area that they called at that time Macedonia, and right now we call that area Greece. That's where this town was. And it had about 200,000 people in Paul's day. So Tempe actually has almost the same amount of people. We have 196,000 people as of 2020 um, in Tempe. So it's actually not like a tiny little ancient village. It was a pretty good-sized um, town. So Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And of course, as was his custom, he started out going to the Jewish synagogue when he got to that town, and he just started preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And some of the Jews there believed, and then eventually some Gentiles believed, and a church was formed. 
And then as what usually happened in these towns where Paul would go and start churches, there, he received hostility from the Jewish religious leaders who did not believe um, what he was teaching. And so he was eventually evicted from the city. So he left, and this, this group of people he loved, you know, he had invested in them. He had basically given them a foundation for a church. So he'd been teaching them not only the gospel, but just about God and how God wants them to live, and he had to leave. So he wants to know how they're doing. And because of the persecution that pushed him out of the town was now going to be directed at the church. So he sent Timothy back to them, and he was Timothy, his job was just to find out how they were doing. So Timothy came back to Paul in Athens, gave him a report about the Thessalon the Thessalonians, and it was a really good report. So, um, and then Paul writes this letter as a result. So I'll give you the key phrase for the book of First Thessalonians from this little book series called Color Through the Bible. My kids have done that for years. I actually brought it with me today because I had so many women on Thursday ask about it. Unfortunately, it's out of print. So I've had a few people that they've been able to find it online somewhere. But anyway, it's just this cute little book and it has um, a key word or a key phrase for every book of the Bible that just summarizes it really shortly. So their key phrase for 1 Thessalonians is stay on target. A target is a goal, of course. It's something that we aim at. Timothy's report about this church was very encouraging. They had stayed on target spiritually, and then Paul in this letter is going to encourage them to continue on. That's the main idea in 1 Thessalonians. So if I could have written the key phrase for color through the Bible, I would have said, excel still more, because he says that a couple times, and then he, it's, he doesn't say those words um, every time, but basically he just says, keep on doing what you're doing. So when Paul writes to them, he gives the church encouraging, truthful commendations, and here is why. So this is A on your outline. The church at Thessalonica had, one, become imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as well as they have be had become imitators of the Lord, even more importantly. The church at Thessalonica had, two, the reputation of expectantly waiting for Jesus to return from heaven. That's a great reputation to have. That's in chapter 1, verse 10. The church had also received the word in much tribulation with joy. That's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6. So this church was familiar with tribulation already, but they also had real joy. And then this church also had four received the word of God, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. That's in chapter 2, verse 13. And then I just wanted you guys to see this. Um, there's some really inspiring characteristics, I think, of this church. So you'll see from these passages why the key phrase would be stay on target or excel still more. So go ahead and look at chapter 4, verse 1, and you can just read along. Paul makes three very encouraging statements about the people in this church, and this is what he writes. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, notice just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And then verses 9 to 11 in the same chapter, he writes, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. 
and then go down to chapter 5, verse 11. He wrote, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So this was a healthy, obedient church. That's the type of church that received this um, command that we're going to be focusing on in chapter 5, verse 14. So B on your outline says that Paul commended the Thessalonians for walking in a manner pleasing to God. He was basically saying, we instructed you about walking out in a way to please God, and you're doing it. He affirmed their love for one another. In other words, they were practicing the one another's that we've talked about here in Wellspring. And he affirmed the way that they were building one another up. Yet, he still felt that it, it was right for him to remind them to do those things and to excel still more. All right, so now let's zoom in a little bit and just look at chapter 5. This brings us to the section where we find our verse for today's lesson. A on your outline under Roman numeral 2. Um, I have chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It's about holy living and the day of the Lord. Now, I took my outline for chapter 5 just straight out of John MacArthur's um, study Bible. Actually, I condensed part of it because I thought I could. So just to give credit where credit's due. Um, so in this section, verses 1 through 11, Paul tells the church um, that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come unexpectedly. So the culture and the world and the people around them, the Thessalonians, were going to be saying, ah, peace and safety, um, meaning basically we finally have achieved peace. You know, everybody wants world peace. It's happened. We've done it. And we're saving our environment. We're making it safe for our children. This is great. Um, yet... As soon as they're saying that, um, the end will come, meaning Christ's judgment on this world will come, the day of the Lord. So um, it made me think of the Old Testament prophets, uh, where they, they often had these kings in Israel that were wicked, would have these prophets that would tell them really good things, like, yeah, you should go to war. It's a great idea. You're going to win. And then a true prophet of the Lord would come and give his prophecy, and he, he would say, no, you guys are going to die. Don't do that. So um, you'd rather hear the positive, um, and that's what's going on. That's what Paul is saying. You're going to be hearing all these positive, wonderful things, but yet um, the day of the Lord is coming. So the reality that God exists and that every person is accountable will be evident, and there's not going to be escape. But Paul encourages the Thessalonian church that they are not designed for that destruction. They have been graciously destined for salvation through Jesus, who died for them so that whether they are awake or asleep, meaning whether they're physically alive or physically dead, they will live together with Christ. So that day does not need to overtake Christians. And then Paul tells them in the section that the church needs to be alert, number one. In MacArthur's commentary, he says, we should be alert to the spiritual issues around us as Christians. Um, Paul's contrasting Christians with everyone else. He's saying Christians are aware of the spiritual and eternal realities that are going on around them, while those who do not believe are unaware and they've actually chosen to be unaware. It's like they've chosen to sleep and to not think about spiritual or eternal issues and realities in life. So we don't want to be like the sleeping, darkened people who will be jolted out of their coma by the day of the Lord. So be alert. Number two, Paul wrote that the church needs to be sober. In Vine's dictionary, defines sober as being free from the influence of intoxicants. 
So Paul seems to be using this word metaphorically here as he contrasts spiritual drunkenness with spiritual sobriety. We need to be self-controlled rather than world or culture controlled. We must not be under the influence of sin or under the influence of the world and the culture around us. And then three, in regard to being sober, we must remember that faith, love, and the hope of salvation protect us. So he talks about metaphorically wearing, wearing faith, wearing love, and wearing the hope of salvation the way a soldier would wear protective gear to protect his head and his body and vital organs. Our salvation, which is the part that's the helmet, it's appointed by God for us. It's based on Jesus dying in our place for our sins and then rising from the dead. Matthew Henry wrote about this hope of salvation. He said, Christ died for us that living and dying we might be his, that we might live to him while we are here and live with him when we go hence. It sounds a lot like Philippians 121, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And it sounds a lot like Discipline 1, just taking our hearts and shepherding them with and toward the gospel. So remembering that hope of salvation will protect us. Since it's true that Jesus will return and we will obtain salvation through him and live with him, Paul instructed the Thessalonians to encourage one another and build one another up just as they were doing, as we already saw in verse 11. Then the next section in chapter 5 is about, and this is B, church relationships, verses 12 to 15. The first church relationship that he addresses is regarding spiritual leaders. Paul urged that the Thessalonian Christians, one, appreciate and esteem those who labor among them, those who have charge over them, who work diligently to teach them. So then next, Paul urged the believers to, oh, number two, care appropriately for one another. And that's verse 14. And then thirdly, in this short little section on church relationships, Paul instructs the believers to three, seek what is good for all people. And that's verse 15. And I think it's interesting that he adds, or just puts in, um, do good to others, do not repay evil for evil, right after this verse um, 14's instructions. Um, just, I think it's um, a safeguard that in any sort of ministry situation, any sort of personal relationship or interaction, we just probably need to remember that we should always be seeking the good for whoever we're interacting with. Then the rest of chapter 5, you could just outline it as see the basics of Christianity, verses 16 to 22, and then D, closing remarks, verses 23 to 28. All right, so let's read our verse, Roman numeral 3. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So if we were to ask a how question of discipline 3, like how do I step into the lives of my sisters in Christ in order to shepherd them toward God and the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a great answer to that question. Now, it's not a complete answer to that question, but it's one of the answers. So you and I are to patiently admonish, patiently encourage, and patiently help one another as is fitting. So this is just a good verse to commit to memory. It will keep us mindful of how we must be flexible in our care toward one another. So notice, first of all, that Paul is urging 
the believers in Thessalonica. The word urge is stronger than just to ask. It's um, entreating and soliciting the Thessalonians to do something. And that something that they need to do is important. It must be done. And then secondly, notice that Paul addresses these commands to the brethren. Paul was not urging the pastors and the leaders only to do this. These commands are for everyone in the body of Christ, everyone who's been forgiven of their sins, and everyone who now wants to live for Christ. So Paul could have used the word believer or beloved, but he used the word brother instead. And that just reminds the Thessalonians of the family-like relationships that are, in, um, that are among people that are in Christ. We are spiritual siblings. We're brothers and sisters. And so there should be the affection and the care that we would extend to natural family members. Okay, so there are four commands in this verse, which I think you guys already answered in your homework. The four commands are admonish, encourage, help, and be patient. There's four commands, and then there's three different categories given for brothers and sisters who are in need of specific care. The unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. So just as we would want a medical doctor to accurately diagnose our physical symptoms, we as spiritual brothers and sisters need to take time to accurately diagnose each other's spiritual symptoms and spiritual needs. That might sound intimidating um, to us, but God's given us his word, he's given us his spirit and his wisdom so we can lovingly care for each other according to each other's need. David Pallison wrote, um, that 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a passage describing and calling for the flexibility of wisdom. I love that. Have you ever thought of wisdom as being flexible? Flexibility can be hard for some of us. It actually requires more thought than not being flexible. So one person may have a natural bent towards um, just one way of doing something, one way of helping others. Maybe that person is just naturally bent towards encouragement. So it's just easier to encourage. They encourage at all times, regardless of the symptoms that they see in front of them. So this is what David Pallison writes about that. He said, a hammer thinks everything is a nail. That would probably be the admonisher. A blanket treats everyone as shivering. A wheelchair thinks everyone needs a lift. But wisdom sees people for what they are and gives what is needed. Okay, so let's just jump in. Our first command is admonish the unruly. Let's just start by understanding what unruly means. Unruly is what it says in the NASB. The ESV translates the word as idle. The NIV uses the word idle, but also adds disruptive to the description. Other versions could say disorderly or irresponsible. The word unruly means to deviate from the prescribed order or rule. And that word was used to describe a soldier who was out of rank someone that was behaving in a disorderly or insubordinate manner. He may not have been performing his duty or following through on responsibility. So if he's not doing something that he was supposed to do, that's where the word idle comes from. Um, but if he's just being insubordinate or speaking in a way that is not appropriate, that might be more of the disorderly or unruly side of it. So to put this in the context of believers, this would be a Christian who knows God's ways knows what would please God, but he or she chooses to do the opposite. So this is a deliberate disregard for what God has commanded. Sarah Demra said this about the unruly. She said, it's a person who does not stay 
excuse me, within God's design for them in at least some area of life. The unruly know God's standard, but they are rejecting his authority over them by disobeying. They are choosing not to live as God instructs. So disorderly or unruliness can be sins of commission, meaning a person's doing or performing a specific sin, um, such as stealing, that would be choosing to do something wrong, lying, committing adultery, or it could be a sin of omission, meaning a person's not doing something that God has commanded. So there's an example of this in the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 2, there were people who were not working, and they were living off of other people, even though they were able to work. And Paul says, admonish them as, un, as sorry, admonish them as brothers. So there's the word admonish, and, and they are brothers. They need to be admonished that they were not doing something they should have been doing. Okay, so that's what it means to be unruly. What does admonish mean? Some versions use the word warn. The word literally means to put in mind. John MacArthur says it's putting sense into someone's head alerting him of the serious consequences of his actions. This is what Sarah Demers said about it. It's a sharp reproof designed to rescue the one who has strayed outside of God's design for their life. So admonishment must not be given from a judgmental or superior condescending attitude in the one doing the admonishing. It should rather be a compassionate yet firm exposing of sin and pointing out the path of repentance, calling the one who's stepping outside of God's design to turn back toward God and obey God rather than obey his or her desires in a specific area. Paul, he gives us an example. Um, I, I guess Luke actually gives it to us because it's in Acts. Um, but he set an example for us of godly admonition with the Ephesian elders. In Acts 20, verse 31, Paul says that while he was with them for three years, he did not cease to admonish them with tears. He loved them, and he wanted to um, minister to them and with them as he was um, living among them. His admonishment to to them was heartfelt, and it came from genuine love for them and a desire to see them grow in Christ's likeness. So we don't have to always have tears. We don't have to be crying. Um, for our admonition to be genuine, but it just the it just illustrates the fact that he just loved these men, and so admonishment was not like I can't wait to like point out this person's sin. It was um, just a true desire of wanting the best for someone else. Um, sorry. Oh, go ahead and jot down Galatians six one. I won't read it, but that's just another example of what admonition should look like. Um, the goal of admonishment is restoration, according to that verse. Admonishment should be administered with gentleness, and the one doing the admonishing needs to be careful to guard her heart when faced with the temptation to sin as she goes to help release her friend from the snare of sin that she's in. So let's put this into a real-life scenario, and I'm going to use the illustration of children. We're going to say we all have a seven-year-old son, okay? So um, let's say your family has a rule that when mom and dad are gone, the kids cannot turn on the television. They can't turn on Netflix or Amazon Prime or anything. Okay, they just can't watch any show. That's just the rule. So um, let's say your son, the seven-year-old boy, is unruly. So when you leave the house, he decides, eh, I think I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to watch a show. 
and I'm going to even pick a show that I know my parents let us watch, so it'll be fine. And so um, he does that. He has stepped out of rank. He has deviated from the path of obedience. Um, and so when you come home, when parents come home, what is going to be appropriate, uh, an appropriate response to this child who is unruly? Would you offer encouragement because, oh, well, at least you picked a good show. Good job. Or would you offer admonition? Well, the correct answer is you would need to admonish him because he has sinned. Um, he has disregarded the rule that the parents have set up for him that's for his good. Um, you can, encouragement is not going to be absent from any sort of admonition, but it's not the first thing that needs to happen. That, that child needs to know that he has sinned against his own conscience and that to go down that path is actually just not going to lead to anything good for him. So as a parent, you see, you assess that situation and you can recognize that you're dealing with an unruly child rather than a faint-hearted or weak child. So that does not require encouragement or help, but requires admonishment. So it's just important that there's clarity in his mind that he has sinned. He needs to know what steps he can take to deal with his sin with regard to his parents and with regard to God. When it comes to applying this to the body of Christ, we need to be able to recognize if we're dealing with a sister who is unruly. You could ask these questions. Is this person choosing disobedience to God? Is she disregarding clear standards that God has set for his children? Is she intentionally stepping outside of God's design for her in order to pursue sin? And if the answer is yes, then this is an unruly person. According to Paul and according to God, the best way to care for this person is to lovingly and patiently admonish her. A sister who is boldly choosing to sin needs someone to be bold in calling sin what it is. Sin is a trap, it's deceitful, it can ensnare us and cause us to atrophy. To call sin whatever it is that's um, ensnaring and deceiving a sister is loving because it is truthful. It points her to Christ, who is her only solution. He is really the only answer to dealing with any of our sins, unless, of course, we pay for those sins in ourselves. So admonishment calls sin what it is, points to the cross, points to the truth a sister needs in order to know what repentance in this area looks like. And to admonish, we need something. We need God's word to admonish. The authority and the clarity for admonishment is not found in our preferences or our own ideas of what being unruly is. So we need to be sure that we're not going and admonishing someone based on just something that we actually just prefer to do. We would prefer that she did this when it's not what God's word says. Um, admonishment um, must be just an echo of what God says in his word. We can't admonish in our own authority. So God's word has the help that we need to point out sin, to make sure we're upholding the right standard, and it points towards true repentance. And then B, encourage the faint-hearted. What exactly does faint-hearted mean? First of all, some other translations of the word say um, disheartened. That's the NIV. Discouraged is the Holman Bible. The word literally means small-souled. It's like a tiny soul. It could be someone who's just in fear and doubt regarding a certain situation. Someone who lacks boldness. Someone who fears change or fears the unknown. Someone who is timid. And not necessarily that this person is this way in every area of life, but just in one situation. 
In the context of the Thessalonians, it could be that some of them were faint-hearted because of their grief over the death of friends and family that had um, been a part of that church. If you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, Paul writes to tell the Thessalonians that someday the Lord is going to return in the air, and those who have died, who have fallen asleep in Christ, are going to be raised up first, and then everyone else that's a believer will be caught up with him in the air, and they'll never be separated from him again, or from each other. And then he says, encourage one another with these words. So maybe that's part of the um, faint-heartedness. Maybe there was some faint-heartedness regarding um, death of loved ones. But you can be encouraged by truth about God, truth about Jesus. So what does Paul say that God wants us to do with a sister who is faint-hearted? If we take time to assess and we listen and observe that a sister in Christ, Christ seems to be faint-hearted, our response must be to patiently encourage her. Encouragement literally means that you give another person courage. So we see a sister who is lacking courage, and we seek to arm her with it. Another way to say it is to hearten her, to make her bold, to spur her on, to stimulate or comfort her. So let's think about faint-heartedness and encouragement in the parent-child context again. So now you have a seven-year-old boy, but instead of being unruly, he is faint-hearted. And that could look a lot of different ways. But for this example, let's just say he is not comfortable being around peers. He'd rather just be with his mom and dad or his siblings. Um, he doesn't really feel comfortable interacting with boys his age. So um, he's lacking courage. He's lacking um, the ability probably to like, think outside of himself. And he needs to be given courage. So one way that you could give a child like that courage is just to speak truth to him and just say, you know what, I'm going to be, we're going to go to the playground and I'm going to be like 10 steps away from you. So I'm going to be right there. We won't be playing together, but I would like you to go over and play with your friends that were meeting at the park or something. Um, that could be giving him courage. The truth is, okay, yeah, my mom's right there. Really, there's nothing I need to be afraid of. Maybe he needs help or courage to speak. You might need to help him with words, like how to start a conversation so that it can lead to them playing together. Um, you could give him biblical, Godward-focused encouragement, reminding him that God is good. God is also with him, and will give him the ability to think of others and to care for them and not just think about himself and how he feels. So um, receiving courage from biblical truth could help this child who fears in this situation um, to be selfless and to initiate kindness and friendship, to give him the courage to do what's right. Now, the difference between a person who is unruly and a person who is faint-hearted probably seems pretty obvious, especially when you think about kids. An unruly child or a faint-hearted child, it's easier to see. But um, the difference is not that the one that's unruly is the only one sinning. So there can be sin in both, the one that's um, faint-hearted and the one that is sinning. Um, they have different needs at the time, so um, the one that's unruly needs to have the sin pointed out right away, and the one that's faint-hearted needs to have encouragement given right away. So what should we use to give courage to our sisters in Christ? What do we need? Again, we need God's word. The best comfort is going to be truth about God, truth about this sister's future, truth about her current situation. I'm going to give you a list of references and just some truths about God that you can jot down and if you need, raise your hand if you want me to repeat something. But these are some verses that I actually just have in my phone and I go to myself just to, when I know that I need truth 
when I need to be reminded of God's promises and who God is if I'm discouraged. Um, but I think they give, they give me courage. So um, first off, um, the faint-hearted need certainty from Psalm 10, 17, that God hears their prayers. Psalm 10, 17, God hears our prayers. The faint-hearted need certainty that he does not forsake those who seek him. That's Psalm 9, 9. Sorry, okay, I'll give you the reference first, and then I'll give you the truth. That'll make it easier. Isaiah 57, 15. The faint-hearted need certainty that God revives the spirit of the lowly and revives the heart of the contrite. 1 Peter 2, 6. They need certainty that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2, 6. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. They need certainty that he will sustain us to the end to be blameless in the day of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. Okay, the next one is Psalm 138, verse 8. They may need certainty that he will fulfill his purposes for them. And then Romans 8.28 and Proverbs 16.9 are very similar. They will need certainty that all things are under God's sovereign, wise, and good control. The Proverbs verse is 16.9. So it may be helpful for you to have your own personal list of verses. Um, that you use for courage that you could have ready to give courage to a sister in Christ. The faint-hearted need truths about God to give them courage for whatever is before them or whatever is within them that's stimulating fear or discouragement. And very likely in the process of being encouraged by the gentleness and kindness of God, they will see areas where their thinking has been unbiblical and they'll be able to turn from that. I wanted to read to you a section from David Pallison's article um, on First Thessalonians. 514. This section is where he explains why we would give admonishment to one and why we would give encouragement to someone else. He writes, wise and timely flexibility is the fruit of 514. So you treat a discouraged, anxious child differently from a willful, rebellious child. Paul teaches us to understand our brothers and sisters in terms of their particular struggles and then to respond appropriately. He never says admonish the disheartened. To acknowledge personal wrongs is not step one for the anxious. If you primarily admonish them, you will only further discourage them. But in the light of facing their fears and troubles, the promises of God become sweet and life-giving. And I would add to that, they probably see, they probably become convicted of things as they're encouraged by God's word and his truth. Probably conviction, well it should, conviction should come about how they need to change in their thinking. In the same way, this is still... David Pallison. In the same way, Paul never says, encourage the unruly. Helping them grasp that God loves them and will not abandon them is not step one for the willful. If you simply offer promises of kindness to the willful, you will only reinforce their impression that God is a sentimental dupe and reinforce their confidence that they can get away with whatever they are doing. But in light of facing their sins, the promises of God become sweet and life-giving. And so that's where the encouragement comes to the one that's being admonished. Um, to face their sin, to see the solution to it, there still is encouragement that can be given. So step one for the unruly is different than step one for the faint-hearted. Both may be sinning, but the unruly, according to God's wisdom, require admonishment, and the faint-hearted, according to God's wisdom, require encouragement. 
Now let's look at the next command, help the weak. Upon first reading of 1 Thessalonians 5.14, this category of people, the weak, may seem hard to distinguish from the previous category of people, the faint-hearted. I know it did for me. So I looked at all the other major Bible translations, like the NIV and the ESV, and they all translated the word the same way, weak. So that didn't help. <laughs> so um, I found a definition. It just, it really means what it sounds like. Um, those without spiritual or moral strength. One commentary said, um, the weak are those who are, are about to yield to temptation, those who cannot endure the testing of persecution and reproach. So it actually helped me to look at the solution, um, what needs to come for the, the weak versus what needs to be given um, when it comes to the faint-hearted in order to kind of make a distinction between the two. So the appropriate way to minister to the weak is to help. And the word help really means that you come really near. You come close to that person in order to help or lift them up. And this kind of help can be seen in the area of gardening. It's the idea of a stake being right next to a limb or a branch that's not growing up or growing the right way. It needs to be held up and, and start growing a different direction. So um, the branch needs support, the idea of support. Um, that kind of very near, close support and help is what God wants us to give the person who is manifesting weakness. So you can already see that a little bit of the difference between in the encouragement that you would give to the faint-hearted and the help that you give to the weak. So again, let's think about this in the realm of children. Let's say you have that seven-year-old boy again, and now he's not disruly or uh, unruly, and he's not faint-hearted, but he's weak. So maybe he is weak in terms of just making, he just makes poor choices, specifically when it comes to who he spends time with, friends. So he's maybe just drawn to boys that are disrespectful, who are unkind, who push boundaries. Um, he's just, for whatever reason, that is just who he is drawn to. And um, he just seems to not be able to uh, make the right choice about with who he's going to spend time with. Maybe he even knows. I can see that these are not the best people for me to be around. I can see that they're influencing me. But when he's put in a setting where he has the choice to hang out with them, he still chooses them. So this, he's, he's weak in terms of his convictions or his ability to do what's right. So you, as a mom, you're not going to stand far back and be away from him and let him Oh, let's just see how this goes. We'll see how he does in this setting. No, you're going to be near to him. You're going to help him make these choices and decisions um, that are difficult for him to make. So probably you're going to determine who he has playdates with. And when he does have time with boys um, or friends, you're going to be there, be close, not be away just talking. You're going to be helping him, making sure that he's choosing what's right. And eventually, hopefully, he will grow and his ability and his convictions and his um, desire to make the right choices and you won't always have to be quite so near. So hopefully that's helpful in just distinguishing the difference between um, the weak and the faint-hearted by thinking about the solutions, whether you need to give encouragement or whether you need to give help. Um, you could, here's some questions you could ask. It could be helpful to ask yourself, does the sister need courage to trust God and obey him? Or does the sister need very close help and support 
in order to obey God in this situation. So once you recognize that the sister is in the weak category, you know that God wants you to help her. You need to give close support and help for whatever the specific situation is. Um, and what do we need in order to help the weak? Again, we need God's words. Just as we do when we admonish and when we encourage, God's truth is the best help you can give. And it might even be very similar truth as to what you would give a faint-hearted person. However, this time, the giving of that help is coming from a very near situation. You're very close to this person, almost like in the trenches with this person. Um, it's not going to just be a text. You know, with someone that might be faint-hearted, maybe you could send her a text and give her some encouragement or have a one-time conversation where you give courage. Um, this is probably going to be a lot more time-consuming, the helping side of helping someone, um, just being near them and helping them through something. It's hard. And I, I thought of a couple different situations um, when it comes to relationships among adults. I was thinking of... Um, Maybe there's someone that just struggles to resist temptation. Maybe it's something about more in the realm of their thinking and um, giving into despair or depression. Just um, maybe even you know that spiral where they're just tempted to start thinking the wrong way, and they're just having a really hard time um, choosing what's right on their own. So maybe that is a friend that you would just say, you know, when is it that you're struggling? So let's just say it's the weekends. It's when they're alone. You just decide, let's just make sure that you're around people that can help you think rightly. Um, so maybe you have them into your home and you help her figure out, okay, I'm going to be with this person on this night. And, you know, just giving them lots of help so that they're not on their own trying to resist temptation. It also made me think of people that might be kind of recovering from addictions where there's just a strong desire to do something that they don't want to do. I know this is wrong but I'm having a hard time resisting it. And they might just need someone to be with them and to help them, just to be near. Um, so just kind of the physical nearness is what I was thinking of. So this walking very closely with another sister for the purpose of holding her up and helping her um, is the idea of what Paul's talking about here. The goal, of course, is not that you will always be holding the sister up. So a word of caution regarding the situation is that the one that's helping should make it should desire and make it their prayer and goal that the weak sister in Christ grows strong and doesn't rely on you forever, the one helping her. She needs to rely on God. So the help that we offer needs to be God-focused. It's a help that doesn't create a dependency on you um, because you're not going to be able to give her everything she needs anyway. It would be um, like a stake that's holding up the entire weight of a tree, that would be an inappropriate use of a stake. That's not what it's for. Um, you're trying to get the tree to be healthy enough to grow in the right direction and then for the stake to be removed. So the stake is just there um, temporarily and that's the way we need to look at ourselves. The help that we give is temporary. All right, there's one more command in this verse and it is D, be patient with everyone. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So regardless of how you assess the sister that you're interacting with, whether she is willfully disobeying, whether she's frozen by fear, or unable to function well on her own, you need to be patient with her. I'll give you some definitions and some descriptions of patience. There's a hyphenated word for patience, and it means the exact same thing. It's long-suffering. You're going to suffer long with 
everyone, whoever you're dealing with. Patience is an even-tempered response of someone who is slow to anger. That's what Expositor's Bible Commentary says. And then that same commentary noted that dealing with the idle, the timid, and the weak requires this disposition, this disposition of patience, because these three groups of people so often refuse to respond immediately to constructive counsel. Another description of patience is that it's the opposite of short-tempered. Leon Morris says, impatience is easy. I know that to be true. He reminds us that patience is also the first description of love listed in 1 Corinthians 13. Patience means literally to be long-tempered. D. Edmund Hebert wrote that patience is that admirable quality which refuses readily to yield to anger and retaliation in the face of being provoked or irritated. So at the beginning of this lesson, I mentioned that David Pallison had written in his article that we each may have kind of a natural bent toward one way of dealing with people, one way of helping them. So maybe that's why we need to remember that all three of these actions, admonishment, encouragement, and helping, need to be done with patience. So if we're going to be doing all three of those things, depending on the situation, depending on the person, at some point we're going to end up serving a sister in a way that's not easy for us or not natural to us. So we're going to need to exert patience when we're admonishing and encouraging. So if it's difficult for me, personally, if, if it's difficult for me to encourage, um, I'm probably going to lose patience when the person that I'm trying to encourage just seems to be unencourageable. I will need patience to keep going. The real danger is that we would stop when we don't see the fruit that we'd like to see. Just as God wants us to be faithful in spreading the gospel, he wants us to be faithful in raising our children, and in both of those situations, we have to leave the fruit and the work up to him. We need to be faithful, but he does the work. Um, in the same way, we need to be faithful in doing these three things, um, or four things, um, and let God bear the fruit. All right, so before we conclude, let's just think about some reasons why we wouldn't obey 1 Thessalonians 5.14. What are some hindrances to obeying it? Well, I'm just going to give you five. There's probably more reasons, but these five I wanted to talk about. First of all, you could just have difficulty assessing what someone is. Maybe you're just unsure if they're unruly, faint-hearted, or weak. Well, the first answer to this hindrance is James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then secondly, just remember, if it's not obvious to you what this person is, you don't have to make a hasty decision and put someone in a box um, arbitrarily. Take time and listen and keep asking questions and listen some more. Ask God for discernment. Um, if you're really struggling, you may just need to talk to someone else, kind of like that doctor at the beginning. He should have probably gone to another doctor and asked for help in diagnosing a patient. Uh, maybe we need to go to someone else that we know, um, know scripture well and could help us and just... Flatten out the details and see if you can get some input from someone else. And it just may take a lot of conversations with a sister that you're seeking to care for, and that's okay. And then just remember that all of us have been in these categories at different times in our lives. These aren't categories that we want to put um, people in boxes and say, oh yeah, you're always unruly. You're just a faint-hearted person, or you're a weak person. They're not. These aren't like lifelong labels for anybody. Um, we don't want to 
assess people and give them a label for the rest of their lives. Um, neither do we need to put someone in these three categories unnecessarily. It's not like these are the only categories of people that we're going to minister to or serve. Paul, the reason he's writing this is just saying, here's what you do when you come across someone who is unruly, when you come across someone who's faint-hearted, when you come across someone that's weak, here's what you do. It's not saying that everyone you talk to is automatically in one of these categories. Okay, 